As Adam Duritz finished counting all the crows. Did you know P.G. Woodhouse wrote Anything Goes? They all want me, they can't have me, so they all come and dance beside me. I think we can all admit to being a bit aroused now. The Mancarena. <laughs> In our conversation about the Macarena last episode, we were commenting on the irony that the Macarena is a comparatively unsexy dance, given yes. that it was inspired by a flamenco dancer. Kevin from New Mexico has reached out to say, I want to point out that the flamenco is not a sexy dance. Flamenco is a rich and complex art form that includes music, singing, hand clapping, percussion, as well as dance. The principal expression is not sexiness, but rather grief, sorrow, and defiance against an oppressive world. Otherwise, I enjoy your show from the high <laughs> desert of New Mexico. Very beautiful place. I mean, can it not be sexy at the same time as prioritising all those other things? I mean, I do know about the other things because I have read a whole book about flamenco. A whole book? So I get that it's meant to be more than just someone like clapping in a dress that's got a lot of frills on it. We're just saying, on the matter of sexiness, flamenco is sexier than the Macarena. I mean, yes. just because the, the principal expression, as Kevin puts it, may not be sexiness... I don't think that's a claim I was making. It doesn't sound like something I'd say. My dance vocabulary is essentially limited to, uh, you know, is this the bit we do the twirl? So I, I imagine that we're just making the point. Uh, flamenco is sexy, and it's also about those things, I think. I'd say defiance is often sexy. Mm. We've also heard from Jennifer about the conversation we had in episode 394 about things that get big cats high. <laughs> Jennifer says, I have been most fortunate to work at Taronga Zoo in Sydney, Australia. This experience allowed me to learn all kinds of fascinating things about many types of creatures. Did you know, Ollie, that lions love the smell of Calvin Klein obsession perfume? <laughs> I didn't because here they used Kate Moss in their adverts rather than Tony the Tiger. <laughs> That's because Tony the Tiger would have ripped Kate Moss to shreds. <laughs> the excitement of the obsession. Although it's it's got to be obsession for men, apparently. I wonder how they found this out, like whether it was just a very unfortunate day when a keeper went in wearing obsession <laughs> yeah. and got attacked by a lion. Now that is the commercial I want to see. I don't Shawn know. Mendes in a lion's cage. <laughs> Shawn Mendes being killed by a horny lion. Wow. I, suppose, I mean, it's not that surprising in a sense, because obviously all perfumes trade on pheromones and wild sense of nature, as we've discussed before. And in Obsession for Men, it is a civetone, which oh. used to be oh. scraped from a civet's perineum. And uh, a civet is a, you know, a mammal that lions naturally uh, are interested in eating. So, right. I mean, it's now made in labs rather than being scraped next to an anus, but it's the same smell. I'm sure I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Who found out that things out of perineal glands and right. anal glands and whale stomachs smell good once you process them for perfume? Who was the first person to put that on their neck? I wonder whether people got sprayed, though, by those animals, oh. you know, in a territorial way, and then realised that it didn't smell unpleasant. I mean, that's not completely unbelievable, is it? A couple of uh, millennia later, let's market this with Christy Turlington on a beach. <laughs> well, apparently, uh, this is so well known, this obsession for men attracting big cats thing, that some wildlife photographers actually smear it all over their cameras um, so that the cats come and get their five seconds of fame on telly. They don't warn you not to wear obsession when you go to visit zoos, do they? I've never seen that. 
No, but I guess you're behind bars. Uh, well, I mean, obviously the, the the cat's technically behind bars, but from the cat's point of view. Mm. So, I mean, if they get close to you, that's a good thing, isn't it, from a spectator's point of view? And normally yeah. if they're allowed to get that close, it's behind glass, isn't it, rather than bars even? Here's a question of source now from James in Lincolnshire, Ooh. Uh, who says, yeah, not that kind of source. Helen, uh, <laughs> answer me this. What is OK sauce, often found on Chinese takeaway menus, and why is it called OK sauce? Surely it can't be just because it has a mediocre taste. <laughs> uh, my um, very limited research, he says, suggests that it is not, for example, the initials of the creators of the sauce, uh, but I haven't been able to find a definitive answer at all. What's the deal? Yeah, I, I haven't uh, found a definitive answer either, just to put that out there straight away. I have seen some bullshit answers, which are like, oh, it's called original ketchup. That's what it stood for, which... Um, <laughs> like OG, but for ketchup. <laughs> which I think is bullshit, but also it wasn't the original ketchup because ketchup pre-existed that. Uh, some say oriental ketchup, which hmm. it's not. It's, a, it's British. It's manufactured uh, and always has been in britain yeah i i understand that people do connect okay sauce with chinese takeaway but actually yeah. i don't really like i just think of okay sauce as an inferior hp i mean is that wrong well, they're both just brown sauces aren't they this is the thing apparently the brown sauce market used to be very regionalized in britain and then about 30 40 years ago hp kind of obliviated the competition i don't know whether that was just because of the spread of like national supermarket chains Mm -hmm. something like that but before that there were a lot of sauces that were kind of like this uh, where it's got that kind of tangy fruity slightly sour taste yeah hp sauce got the tamarind okay sauce it was like raisins spices shallots why are you talking past tense well because uh, even though it's been around they think since the late 19th century it sort of stopped being sold in britain mainly and unilever bought it and manufactures it specifically for export to asia Right. And do they think of it as a British sauce then? Which is weird because we now think of it as a Chinese sauce because right. the Chinese like it. It's so incredibly <laughs> confusing, isn't it? So I don't know whether they think of it as a British sauce or maybe like they think of it in the same way that we think of like curry sauce you get in a chip shop. Yeah. Where it's like inflected with curry sauce from, I'd say it's most like a Chinese curry or a, a Japanese uh, curry sauce, but it's probably not going to pass as one of those if you took it back to those countries. Yeah, so maybe in China it's sold as an Anglo-Chinese thing, you know, in the same way that you can now get tikka masala in India and they think of it as a British thing. Yeah, so I don't know whether it was like exported to Asia and then exported back effectively for the takeaways here, because it is in a lot of recipes, or whether it's just like only the Chinese takeaways here are still buying it. I don't know. Okay, so that's what it is, and that's yeah. why the Chinese have it, but you can't work out why it's called OK. I imagine it's called OK just because that's a phrase. Yeah, exactly. And we covered this in Early Answer Me This and the book, that there was this this trend for humorous misspellings, and this was a humorous misspelling for all correct, spelt with an O and a K. I think it was, even though it was, had been around since, like, first half of the 19th century in the US, I don't know how quickly that kind of slang would have... Um, come to britain so maybe it mm. seemed like very new it's trendy isn't it it's a bit like naming a source after a hashtag now isn't it i mean you wouldn't do that because those things pass so quickly but as you say back then maybe trends took 10 years to fade but also i don't think okay was mediocre then i think it was like you know sound yes good yeah not fine i'm not sure people think of okay magazine as mediocre i mean they should but i don't <laughs> think they do you know it's as a brand it doesn't mean average does it? it it kind of yeah like you say it means like this is a reasonable product <laughs> yeah this is this is positive yeah it's like fine used to mean good rather than just like well not terrible 
Yeah. Also, okay, really fits very well on the label of a slender bottle. It really does. Like HP does. Yeah, and a sachet as well. Whereas, you know, Heinz tomato ketchup is a stretch, isn't it? You said Heinz, you've changed. I did. (laughs) We bullied you into it. Oh, God, the guilt. It's like you and penguins. So if you want to get okay sauce and you're not in a Chinese takeaway, you now have to go on to Amazon to get it, basically. Do you? Um, Because it's not in the supermarkets. Do you have any products that you have to buy online that you're kind of, that are staples of your cupboard? Yeah, there's a vegan black pudding I really like. Oh, this is exactly the information (laughs) I wanted. Go on. This would probably go great with the okay sauce. The vegan black pudding is by the Real Lancashire Black Pudding Company. Free plug for them. £2.29 <laughs> off lancastersmokehouse.co.uk. Buy two, get one free. There we go. What is in it, though? What's in vegan black pudding? Is it pulses or something? How do they... It's uncannily like black pudding, so it must be um, the blood of vegetables. <laughs> what about you? I do buy Amora Dijonese uh, from the internet. Oh, yeah. Have you ever had that? No, I don't think so. But I'm not really in the market for mayonnaise... Right. Well, as you know, I'm something of a connoisseur. I mean, it's oh, yeah. my number one or number two lubricant. And <laughs> it's made by uh, Unilever. So it's an absolutely mainstream product in France. Yeah. So like, if you go to the... This, this is a problem, isn't it? You try it once and then you're like, mm. oh God, that's so much better than what we have. So on holiday in France, I just... It was one euro for a pot in France. I got this stuff and it, as the name suggests, is half Dijon mustard, half mayonnaise. And the, you can get Dijonese here. I think Hellman's do one, but it's not as good. And you can't just add some Dijon mustard to mayonnaise yourself? Yeah, I've done that too. But no, because because it's a commercialised product, it has... How can I say? Like, if I try and make it myself, it's a bit too sophisticated. You know, if you want just right. the instant hit, vinegary hit, you know, the sort of kebab shop thing, it's a cheap sauce. Like, if you want the cheap sauce taste, um, the only way is to, is to buy the Amora Dijonese for seven pounds that's what it costs Ooh. here that's the markup on it when you buy online but i can't i do spend about 40 quid a year on that and also um as you know i'm not a big fan of tea but i do like uh, murrow's welsh brew oh yeah you do which is in the supermarkets in wales so again you try it in wales you think great can't get it in an english supermarket so i have to order that online too uh here's a question from julie who says i was talking to a friend who admitted that when she's in someone's house uh-huh. and she uses their bathroom she will almost always open their medicine cabinet. Oh, boo. One good thing about lockdown is this not happening. <laughs> she says it's very interesting and you can learn a lot about a person. <laughs> yep, that's right. Accessing the medical records would do the same. Mm. Uh, this, of course, led to a discussion about whether this behaviour is an invasion of privacy or if you invite someone into your home... Should you assume that your bathroom is a semi-public space and be prepared for a guest to snoop around a little bit? If I invite someone into my home, should I assume that my armpit is a semi-public space and be prepared for my guest to snoop around in it a bit? So, Helen, answer me this. Do you think it is okay to look around in someone else's bathroom cabinets? No. No. Uh, I don't like it. (laughs) I wish you wouldn't. If you're like, well, they invite me into their house, I'm just going to go and look through their underwear drawer. Mm. You're just not expecting that. When you're inviting someone around. It's interesting how people have such vastly different kind of moral spheres. I don't really think it's acceptable to have a shit in someone else's bathroom. Never mind look through their cupboards. Yeah, although sometimes you don't have a choice. Well, the choice is to shit on their carpet or shit in the bathroom. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but I mean, I have been known in the right circumstances, you know, if there's a McDonald's next door to go and do the shit in the McDonald's. Like, that's how much I think I just don't want to do that at someone's house. I think the point is with house is that the things that are out are things that people are happy for you to look at. And the things that are put away. Yes. It's not necessarily that there is anything in there that's exciting. It's just, it's not fair game, like your friend is saying. 
I think the only exceptions are if I'm staying with someone and I need to find like where the next loo roll is, yes. then I might open their bathroom cupboard. But that is yeah. it. I'm not interested to... I surprised myself, actually. I would have thought that I would be a super nosy person, but I'm utterly uninterested in what people haven't voluntarily told me. And I don't know whether this because I would dread someone reading my diary if I kept one or mm. rifling through my stuff, or whether it's just like, that's all the information I want really is, is how they filter it to me. So even if you left your diary on the table in front of me, I wouldn't feel like I wanted to open it. Yeah, but don't you do that thing where you're in a supermarket and you're at the checkout and you look over and you're like, why is he buying 10 loaves of bread? Everyone does that, don't they? No, don't give a shit. Or what about a kitchen, Helen? Yeah. Again, not looking in people's cupboards, but if, you know, we've just had an interesting discussion about stuff we import. <laughs> what if you saw, you know, someone's spice drawer on display? Would you, be, would, you be, would you check it out in the corner of your eye? A bit. It's different, isn't it, if it's on the counter in labelled glass jars versus in a cupboard. Like, you do often have to go into someone's kitchen cupboards. I think there's gradations, aren't there, of privacy when you go to someone's house. You don't want to, like, oh, I wonder what's in their bathroom cupboard. Oh, they're depression meds, great. Like, <laughs> that's not the kind of thing they necessarily want to share with the, someone they've invited into their living room. <laughs> it's like, oh, they're clearly on the period at the moment. They haven't got very many tampons. Up. It's like you... <laughs> Oh, they've got piles. This is, these are bits of through the keyhole that I would like to see, to be fair. <laughs> I just think unless someone has absolutely no signs of personality in their home, how much is it telling you that they have dental floss? Having said that I find this whole idea odd of like poking around in someone's bathrooms, I must say, when we got our bathroom done about three years ago, it was part of the tour. So that's I know you're saying like if you're displaying it, it's different. But like we were encouraging people to poke around in our bathroom cupboard because it's got a touch sensor LED built into it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a miracle. How does it work? It's got a built in plug for your shaver. Oh, my God, I know. Wow. So that was like very much part of the tour when we uh, had that put in because we were excited about it. You know, maybe that's the secret then to have all the hidden stuff on display so people are less tempted to poke around and then you've got a second bathroom cabinet behind the public bathroom yeah. <laughs> cabinet the decoy cabinet yeah a little medicine safe so the other thing you could do is lace your bathroom cabinets with uh, terrifying things for someone to find like uh, joke severed fingers yeah and then what could they do about that like if they spotted something sinister like is it reason i mean obviously if it's a dismembered head you, they sort yeah. of have to report it like and their, their embarrassment that they were poking around in your cupboards is secondary yeah. uh, to um, the concurrent murder investigation the, you're saying what are you supposed to do about it that's on the person snooping you know that's what they've got to live with this yeah. knowledge they went after it and now they can't handle it if you've got a question email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com 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 Here's a question from Duffy from Northwood who says... Ollie, answer me this. Are the Adams family supernatural or just an eccentric and gothic-themed family? Hmm. This is actually a toughie um, because uh, as the lyrics of the TV show famously tell us, uh, they're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're <laughs> altogether ooky and they're also neat, sweet, petite, strange and deranged. But they're not actually witches and vampires. Like, that is not specified. Just got the look. But then you think, hold on, they have Thing in the house. 
thing is a disembodied hand with a mind of its own, which I'd call pretty fucking supernatural. So which is it? Mm. If you're not uh, a creature constructed in the style of Frankenstein's monster, why would you have that look? Because Herman... Is it Herman? Is like You're thinking the monsters. Oh, wait, that's the monster. But you're, yes. oh, you're falling into a trap that I think reveals some of the answer. Oh. Right. Before we fast forward to 1960s television, uh, when the monsters went up against the Adam family in the ratings and are still confused now, as Martin has just evidenced, <laughs> let's go yeah. back to 1938. Uh, when the Adams family were created by the cartoonist Chaz Adams for The New Yorker. For 26 years in The New Yorker, the Adams family were just a single panel cartoon. They were very popular, right? but they were archetypes. And the joke was basically, they're eccentric and they're morbid. They're what we'd now call gothy. Eccentric and, and they're, they're morbid. morbid. They're dirty and they're sordid. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're not supernatural. Like Very clearly, if you look back at those cartoons from The New Yorker, they're not raising people from the dead. Hmm. They are a satire of the all-American family. So the joke is, like, it's a single-panel cartoon. So the joke is just let's subvert the things we all see as the all-American family's behaviour. So, like, Dad doing a bedtime story will be doing shadow puppets on the wall of bats. Ah. Or the little girl, and I'm note that I'm not using the word Wednesday yet, the little girl will come out and say to the mother, note that I'm not using the word Morticia yet, the little girl will come out clearly having had a fight with her little brother, and the mother will turn around and say... Well, go and poison him back, you know. So it's it's, it's like, <laughs> the joke is just like what would the American all American family do? Well, what if you were really seriously gothy and weird? It's a way of talking about people who aren't white picket fence America, isn't it? Although you've still got a family that is uh, heterosexual, cisgender, they're rich enough to have staff. It's a tight knit family, right? So it's not subverting the family unit. It's just like the things that they're saying to parent are not considered anodyne. And they didn't have names. Like, they weren't called Morticia mm. and Wednesday and Festa. They, for 26 years, didn't have names. Huh. Mm. Then, uh, the Monsters gets commissioned. And the Monsters are supernatural, because the Monsters, as well as doing the same joke, let's satirise the All-American Family, are also parodying the Universal Monster films. So ah. the Monsters are actually like filmed in black and white to look like the Universal Monster films, oh, parodies right. of Frankenstein as he was in the Universal films, so, i.e. the monster is Frankenstein, um, Dracula, etc. So they are supernatural. And then the Adams Family comes out on telly in 1964, the same year. <laughs> and so the Adams Family TV show gives them all names, obviously, because it's a sitcom. So suddenly you, you get the names, you get more detail on the relationship, the characters are more fleshed out. And you get this confusion where even though the Adams Family are just kind of kooky and the monsters are genuinely otherworldly, plot lines and motifs and the way they resonate in the public imagination get confused between the two. I mean, no wonder, because they started airing, like, within days of each other. Yeah. I mean, it was a good idea. The fact we're still talking about it in 2021 suggests that they had a good concept in 1964 for a TV sitcom. Yeah, but it's just odd. Within a week in September 1964, both of these shows started airing to be conflated in our minds. And they got cancelled in, I think, the same week as well, extraordinarily, a few years later. May the 12th, 1966, for the Munsters, Adam's Family ended a little earlier ended like a month earlier there you go, yeah. in 1966 yeah so they, they were always were kind of seen by the public as the same thing and, and in that sense the adams family tv show isn't really the adams family panels 
And in fact, the editor of The New Yorker, stopped, after all those years, stopped the Adams Family Aww. cartoons from appearing in his magazine whilst the TV show was on because he saw the TV show as like the mainstreaming of this satirical <laughs> idea. And he didn't want The New Yorker to be associated with that. It sounds like a Gen X teen, I love it. Mainstream, man. It's not what our, our publication's about. So is the TV series canon then? Well, if I'm going to adjudicate on this, I would say it's reasonable now that there is some sense that the Adams Family might be supernatural because of the TV show, because of the film. So until the 90s, the Adams Family had largely been forgotten about. Um, everyone remembered the theme tune, but it wasn't really running anywhere, and the Monsters had won. Like, the Monsters was the more popular rerun. But when they decided to make the movie, then in the film there are events that happen in the film that, although it's not explicit that they're supernatural, you could only really survive them if you were some, if you had some sort of contract with the devil, basically, when you're not <laughs> going to die. So the movie used so many motifs from the TV show and then became canon in the way that our generation thinks about the Adams Family that I think now we can say that they're a bit supernatural, yes. And in fact, uh, Scott Rudin, who was the producer of the movie, didn't have the rights to the TV show. He had the rights huh. to the theme song, which he got MC Hammer to remix. Very good. And the original characters. Um, but of course, that got really complicated because the characters didn't have names. So they used the names from the TV show. They used a load of ideas from the TV show. Then they got sued once the film became a hit. And they had to give a load <laughs> uh... of money to the guy who created the TV show. Shit. Uh, and Thing as a character is in the film, and that clearly didn't exist in the comic. So it was, it was. I mean, they settled out of court, but I mean, I think they would have lost if they'd have claimed that you know that the ideas in the film came from the comic strip because it just clearly didn't. Well, also, Thing specifically wasn't a disembodied hand until the films, but before that, in the TV series, you only saw the hand because the idea was the creature was too monstrous to see all of. Yeah, and also it's expensive to do a disembodied hand in a black and white sitcom, isn't it? Well, I've never tried, but I assume. <laughs> and in the TV show, it was played by the same person who played Lurch, the butler. Side fact that I found interesting, uh, The Adams mm. Family, uh, 1992, is the biggest selling pinball machine of all time. Really? Yeah. I've played it. I went to the Pinball Hall of Fame in Las Vegas for The Modern Man, and I played most of the machines there. And it was my favourite, actually. I didn't realise it was the most popular of all time. Um, but it's it's partly because of the technology in it. Right. It has a thing that comes and collects the balls, so that's really cool. <laughs> and it has dialogue from the film. I suppose it just it was released at exactly that kind of sweet spot where arcades were still a thing, so there was money to be made, so budget went into developing pinball machines. But there was still sort of a monoculture, like the web hadn't come along and, and fragmented everything. So you could have a big blockbuster film reflected in a pinball machine. It was an event playing the pinball machine. It's basically the last and best of its era. So it is based on the film and not on the comic strip or the TV series. It is, yes, clearly based on the film, but it's got the music from the TV show. Because, of course, you can't. I mean, you can't now do any version of The Adams Family that doesn't start da-da-da-da. That was apparently the reason that Scott Rudin decided to resurrect the franchise as a movie was because he was driving around with some mates and they started singing the Adams Family theme song 30 years after it had last been on telly and everyone knew every word. And he was like, mm, That is impressive. There's something powerful in this. I could not hum the Monsters theme tune to you, I'm afraid, <laughs> exactly. even though I did watch it when <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> is that real? <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Hmm, I have to take your word for it, Marty. 
It's coming back anyway in 2021. Adam's Family or Monsters. The Adam's Family, yes. On Netflix, there's going to be a new live-action TV series adaptation directed by Tim Burton, really stretching his muscles from all those cliches we associate with him. Yeah, because Tim Burton turned down filming the first Adam's Family film because he was busy filming Batman Returns. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? It's like it's such a lazy choice, isn't it? True. I mean, he's been mooted for director of every version of the Adams Family for the last 30 years. But it's going to be following Wednesday as a student. So it's a kind of high school comedy, as well as being about the house. Right. And she's going to use her psychic ability, so, like I say, a bit supernatural, to solve mysteries in it. That doesn't seem like quite enough of a stretch compared to other things that have been on screen since... Like other kind of supernatural teen things. It's the Adams Family though, isn't it? I mean, we're in a world where just the name, like anything with a strong name, you could you could make and people will watch it because viewing figures are quite yeah. small for things compared to things with, that have no brand. And that's it, isn't it? It's just traction, I suppose. You can, it can be anything. Why don't they do one where the monsters move in next door to the Adams Family? <laughs> be like Alien versus Predator or when all the Marvel and the DC superheroes join up. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd watch the pilot. Just to see how they mashed up the theme tunes. There was apparently an Adams Family musical on Broadway. What staggers me is it was the most performed high school musical in 2018, and I've literally never heard of it. Wow. Yeah. Came to the UK once with Les Dennis in the cast. That might be why it never made it to the <laughs> West End. Is Cousin It meant to be supernatural? Or just a weird Just unshaved. Cousin? Yeah, don't know. Everyone's got a weird cousin. Yes, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Support for Answer Me This comes from the Great Courses Plus, to whom we offer our enthusiastic thanks. Great Courses Plus thanks. <laughs> you can learn anything. You can learn to speak a new language, how to play chess. What have you been doing, Helen? Well, I've been watching the new Great Courses Plus course, Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies to a Better You, because I'd like to meet a better me. I thought there was something about you today that was just somehow better. Like, I was trying to I was trying to put my finger on it. I was like, you're just indefinably just a better person today, but I can't think what it Shut is. Shut up. because you've done that Leave course. Leave me alone. <laughs> so far, I've watched the part about procrastination, which um, <laughs> I was having... A particularly bad problem with the last few days, although it is a constant companion of mine. Yes, he's your dark passenger. There are some tips that I had meant to do anyway, where it's like, write down the task you've got to do, but break it into small tasks, each of which can be completed in a session. Yes. But they suggested, and this surprised me, sit quietly and think about the task you have to do for 15 to 20 minutes. What? I mean, I sometimes only have 15 minutes to do the task. Well, I mean, that's probably not the kind of task they're talking about then. Like if the task is you've got to go and like fill your car up with petrol, just go into it. But <laughs> if it's like a big piece of work that you've got to do or something, yeah. because usually procrastination isn't doing nothing. It's usually doing other things that engage you more than the thing you've got to do. And it's avoidant. So yes. By spending the time not doing anything, you're less likely to get into the avoidant activities. And also, you know, you've had enough time to think about the task, which reduces your anxiety about the task because you've kind of processed some of that already because uh, procrastination, a lot of that is anxiety. If I do the task, will I fail? Will I prove to myself that I'm bad? 
I felt very seen. Right. So it's turning procrastination into percolation, isn't it? It's like letting the ah. idea drift around. It's like sleeping on it, but it, whilst you're awake. Yes, exactly. And then I watched uh, the uh, module about multitasking, but I was also reading some of my open browser tabs at the time. So I was like, yes, you uh, need to uh, study this more because yeah. you clearly have a problem. People who have hundreds of open browser tabs have a problem with multitasking. Well, actually, one of the great things about the Great Courses Plus is that it also has an app. Um, which means that you can walk around with it on your phone. You can listen to courses mm. as well as watch them. So if if actually you are distracted visually by lots of things going on, you don't have to sit and watch the video. You can be doing other things whilst you're listening and sort of learn through osmosis as well when you want. Yes. And right now you can get a free trial of unlimited access mm. for which you can sign up today through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Do it now. <laughs> Redeem your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Answer. Hi, Helen. Hi, Ollie. Hi, Sam and Martin. I'm not going to give my name just in case the person I'm about to talk about also listens to your podcast, but um, I'm going to call her Big Deb. And Big Deb and I worked at the same office. And Big Deb was a very unique individual, very loud, very obnoxious, very opinionated, abrasive. She had a cackle that could just send a shiver down your spine. And I think she had a few um, personal hygiene problems as well. And just to avoid her, I would start taking my lunch later and later and later. So she and I would not be in the single lunchroom at the at the same time. So I'd end up eating my lunch at 3 o'clock some days. But um, I also had a very good friend who had to work right beside Big Deb. And... This friend was getting completely stressed out because it was a very toxic sort of um, atmosphere being around Big Deb. And the company we worked for was small, family-run, very loyal, so no one ever got fired. I mean, you'd have to set, you know, a bomb off in the building or do something really drastic to get fired. So it seemed like Big Deb was there to stay. So just for fun and to cheer up my friend, and as a joke... I made a voodoo doll to represent Big Deb, and I took some white muslin and um, little tiny letters that I put on a stamp pad and, and painstakingly stamped out all these words all over the body, things like, you do it, I'm busy, that's not my job, I've got baked hours, I'm leaving early, no overtime for me, I love bejeweled, that kind of thing, because those were things that Big Deb would always say. And then I cut the fingers off a small knitted glove and stuffed them and put a little pink bead on the end for nipples and sewed on these enormous <laughs> pendulous tits on this voodoo doll <laughs> and put a few dressmaker pins in it and gave it to my friend to cheer her up. And we had a good laugh about it. And that was that. However, two weeks later, to our surprise and complete shock, Big Deb got fired. Uh, she was brought into a meeting room. They closed the door. We heard bellowing. And then she was gone. And that that was it. But we were completely shocked that this had happened. So needless to say, I've had a bit of a niggling guilt going on. And I need some help with this issue. So Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Do voodoo dolls really work? <laughs> and... If, in fact, they do, does Big Deb's firing 
from her job, does the responsibility of that now fall upon my shoulders? Amazing. Honestly, it is not Very often strong. that we get a call that's more than one minute long and our hearts are filled with delight when we press play. This is this is the exception that proves the rule. What a masterpiece. Incredible delivery. <laughs> Just kept on giving. There's a lot to unpick. I have this image of this uh, doll as like the Venus of Willendorf, like yeah. one of these like prehistoric icons of womanhood. <laughs> now with the pendulous tits with the pink nipples. <laughs> I, I guess... We should probably just tackle the question head on because the question is straightforward in a way. Do voodoo dolls work, yes or no? <laughs> is there scientific study? <laughs> is there any evidence to suggest that they do? It's complicated because voodoo dolls, well, firstly, they're not actually to do with voodoo, the uh, Haitian religion, the diaspora religion. There's a lot of uh, religions going back uh, millennia that use effigies and a lot of them are supposed to be positive effigies so they're meant to be for protection they're meant to be for health mm. they're meant to try to make sure a society doesn't starve or die of illnesses but of course some are used for curses but the most similar thing seems to be these objects in the central africa region like hongo uh, called enkisi which are they don't have to be dolls it's just that the physical object is like the vessel for the meaning that you need. So it could be a shell or something, but they are often in bodily forms. And um, these ones tend to have like a little kind of window in the belly where they have packed medicine, although that's sort of a term for like significant objects, and then they'll seal that in with glass. Uh-huh. It's like the worst Build-A-Bear ever. <laughs> but these things are only meaningful because you make them meaningful and then they wake up the spirits in them when they need something by poking a nail into them. So they're not to harm that which the effigy is of. It's not that they really wanted to kill someone when you see one of these dolls with loads of nails in it. It's just they really needed that thing to do the things that, or you know, or to represent the things that they had invested in it. It's not targeted on other people, is it, by the sound of it? Right. The thing is, because all of these objects are attached to a belief system... I don't think you can just kind of come in with no belief system yes. and expect them to work. I know that that is often how it works in a horror film where someone will like find a mysterious amulet and suddenly like they're a witch from like some kind of ancient witch culture. Yeah, right. But it becomes something else, doesn't it? It's a bit like when people try and borrow principles of Buddhism, isn't it? And turn it into kind of positive thinking and med- you know meditation mindfulness. And, and mindfulness. Exactly. Which is its own thing, but it's not Buddhism. So I guess that's the thing, isn't it? A voodoo doll, does it cease to be a voodoo doll when it's separated from its meaning? Right. So what is your belief system around this doll? And if you hadn't made the doll, but Big Deb had still been fired would you then have thought well i had all these bad thoughts about big deb did i manifest this right it's your guilt exactly because you hated big deb for a long time anyway right exactly you were putting a lot of negative energy into big deb and actually you've you've managed quite cleverly actually to to almost circumnavigate your own responsibility by creating the voodoo doll it's just that it's backfired on you the doll has become the object of your guilt because you made your guilt into a physical object Mm. i mean i guess what you didn't do or at least you haven't told us about it if you did is confront big deb and make big deb feel bad i think if i was big deb and i found this doll with the pendulous tits i would feel (laughs) terrible and i would remember it for the rest of my life yes Mm. something for the bathroom cabinet if you want to piss (laughs) off your friends but presuming big deb didn't this was a way of you and your friend managing your stress and constant aggravation and also because you can't really tell someone especially someone who you think is never going to be let go by the company so you're going to be trapped with them in a working environment for perhaps decades you can't really ever tell someone look 
we find you loud and obnoxious and you smell. I mean, those are things that you yeah. can't really change, mm. really. Um, so, I mean, you can ask someone to sort of tone it down in specific instances, which has been particularly annoying in singing or something. But, I mean, you, there are just some people who just rub you up the wrong way. And, and then you're trapped with them in a workplace. We haven't heard what they did to this voodoo doll, whether they actually stuck it with pins. Mm. The correspondent wrote a lot of things on it. Yeah, but those are just things that the person said. That wasn't, like, to cause the person or the doll harm. That was just to identify the doll as being related to Big Deb. In the sort of popular Western understanding of a voodoo doll, typically... It's shown as, like, if you stab a pin into someone's leg, they get a leg pain. If you stab it into their torso, they get, like, a bad liver or whatever. So it's a very specific linking of, like, the physical object and the ailment. Yeah, it's basically acupuncture with malice, isn't it? <laughs> so how would you manifest someone losing their job on a voodoo doll? Right. Like, how would you represent that? Stuff I mean, if, it with a P45. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you've, got the, if you've got the creativity to actually, with the voodoo doll, get that person fired, I'm impressed. You could test it by making a voodoo doll of yourself and, like, Sticking a pin in the knee and seeing if you get a bad knee. Or <laughs> rubbing the knee and see if you get a better knee if you've already got a bad knee. Since a lot of them are supposed to be used for healing. Why do people making voodoo dolls never do control experiments? Yes! <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, Martin, what you're outlining there, and you are accurately kind of describing how voodoo dolls are portrayed in Hollywood films, is that yeah. the Hollywood representation of voodoo dolls is essentially sort of a vehicle for racism, isn't it? Like it's a way of, of having a baddie of colour who's doing an evil thing because you tie it into a religion or tradition that only came from native peoples or from African countries. It's not how it works. Yeah. It's a misunderstanding, isn't it? Or deliberate misunderstanding, maybe. Because there was quite the trend in um, mid-20th century Hollywood horror films for voodoo dolls, you know, having all these powers... The US government did issue a public health warning in 1958 saying that these dolls could be lethal. <laughs> but it is coincidence, isn't it? Like if Big Deb had remained, you wouldn't think the voodoo doll worked. Maybe someone else at the company complained about Big Deb to management. Or maybe management were like, you know what, Big Deb's not working out. Maybe because it's a small company, you don't actually see that many people uh, leaving. So it seems like an anomaly, but maybe it's just, you know, the rate of people being fired from a company reflected in a small company. The act of making the doll, um, although it was obviously therapeutic for our caller, was probably misplaced. And that's why she feels guilty about it now. Yes. As you said, she hadn't really thought through how that person might feel if ever they saw it. But also it's just it's one thing when you're sitting around having a drink to laugh at the person's expense when they're not in earshot about all the things you hate about them. But to actually spend the time to create an object that represents those feelings. It feels like you're crossing a line. Yeah. But I can see why you would do it. Like, like you say earlier, like if you were like, well, this is someone that until I leave this company, I'm going to be sat next to like my, my whole working life <laughs> a day. We do get so many questions about annoying co-workers and annoying neighbours and annoying housemates. I think it's just other people are annoying in large doses. Yes. Hellers are the people. Therefore, we resort to some... Not very nice behaviours to channel our stress, but hopefully not to make that other person feel bad directly. But then uh, we have the guilt. The thing is, it doesn't have to be someone who's got, a, you know, an entirely horrendous personality all the time. It can just be a little thing about someone that when you're stuck with them in an environment, you, you find irritating on a daily basis. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> that you then amplify. I used to work with a guy who's just the thing that really just annoyed me. And looking back on it now... I think, God, he was 40 and he was unhappy with his life. That's what this was. But the thing that annoyed me was I'd just started. It was my first job in telly and I was so excited to be there, you can imagine. And he was just really miserable. That's the thing that annoyed me about him. But it's just like he, he sucked the energy out the room and I had to sit opposite him. Mm. And I just used to think, why are you here? Like you, you, you obviously 
are hating this, but you're making everyone else feel bad all day long because you're unhappy. That's depression. I worked for like two weeks with someone who used to sing Bad Day by Daniel Powter a lot. (laughs) And uh, I remember that like 15 years later, just two weeks with this person. In the 90s, I hired a 12-person web team to build and run my websites and I realised my tech dream. Then the dot-com bubble burst and I had to drown them in a stream. Why didn't I just sack them? But now, thanks to Squarespace, you can do it alone and build a lovely website for tablet or smartphone. Enjoy it now, cause in 10 years you'll be replaced by a drone. Just like Terminator 3. Thanks be to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This and for making it so easy to build and run a website. Yes, actually the running the website bit is something that we don't talk about very much. Yeah, everyone's just about how do I start things, yeah, not yeah. how do you maintain it year on year exactly. on year. <laughs> that's right. But th- th- that's the thing. You, we've had a Squarespace website for many years. Uh, AnswerMeThisStore.com yep. is where we sell our archive and you can see that is beautifully designed using Squarespace. Um, but there are loads of features like under the hood that if you want to, you can add on. So for example... Um, you can do now really quite sophisticated email campaigns uh, from right within your Squarespace dashboard. Because you can, once you've got everything, all your templates stored in Squarespace, they can automatically generate emails that use your website title and logo at the top. You can drag elements from your website, you know, showcases of your products and galleries and stuff like that. So instead of spending like hours re-uploading all the photos, it's just a case of using the same elements again. In, a, in an email that is just as pretty, huh. basically, as the website is. This is useful because I have a mailing list for The Illusionist, which I've used precisely once because uh, it did take me all day to format it. And if I can just port over stuff that I've already formatted, game changer. Jobs are good. Try it for yourself. You can get a two-week free trial at squarespace.com slash answer. And then when you're ready to sign up, you can get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code answer. answer. Here's a question from Liv, who says, I just saw a video of a red crab feasting on the newly hatched babies she's just laid. Mm-hmm. Helen, answer me this. Why do animals do this? Eat their young, having just spent so much energy creating them. Well, having spent so much energy is, is part of it. They don't do this unless they're really, really hungry. Studies have shown that they basically have to starve the mother crab for her to eat the babies. And even then, like the likelihood isn't increased as much as you would think. You know, if it's a choice of like dying and not being able to take care of any of the young and them die then they'll eat a couple of the young see i hadn't realized that it was to do with their own survival i guess i thought in as much as i've thought about this at all i thought that it was the darwinian thing of survival of the fittest in terms of killing off the kids that aren't going to make it yeah they're not going to make it so i might as well eat them as opposed to i need to eat something for my own survival so i'll eat the weakest yeah i definitely think that's it as well that um if you have young that are not going to make it. I, I think also they're more likely to eat larvae than when the crabs have developed, like, crunchy shell. Yeah. Well, it's tastier, isn't it? You, you have to boil a crab, really, to make it taste nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you get a soft shell. I'd imagine when they're babies, they're, they're mm. a little easier. Nicer at the caviar stage, though, I should think. Some things in wildlife documentaries, you watch them and you think, oh, this must happen all the time, but it's, like, on the documentary because it's unusual yes i think this video is like viral because it is unusual i've definitely sometimes seen in nature documentaries it presented as it's all instinct this birthing thing and they haven't thought this bit through they're just hungry some crabs are eaten by their young so there's that like some of them will uh, give up their own bodies for the sake of their young Mm. i was reading about why cats eat their kittens because that seems to be like a lot more documented and some of that is like 
um, if if there's a kitten that's been stillborn or is born disabled, the cat will eat those kittens to protect them from predators. I suppose it's like if they're going to die anyway, I'd rather... They lived on inside me and also I got the energy of their kitten flesh. Yeah, still grim though, isn't it? It is really grim. And also just um, if the cat needs nutrients in order to feed the rest of the young, then they might eat like one or two kittens. But also cats um, are highly susceptible to stress and anxiety, apparently particularly after just having given birth. So say if there's a lot of noise or like too many people in the vicinity... Uh, that may make the cat like very nervous and defensive and, and think these kittens are being exposed to predators and I need to protect them by eating them. Okay. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I guess a lot of our queasiness comes from anthropomorphizing animals, which is something that, you know, over the course of this show, we've proved time and time again, you should probably try and avoid doing because they're not humans. Yeah. But it's just hard, you know, it, with creatures that you relate to, it's different with a crab, isn't it? With a cat. It, it just so underlines the fact that they're from a completely different kingdom to us. Well, I suppose we think differently about mammals versus um, uh, creatures that lay eggs. Like crabs yeah, might probably. be like, oh, they've had like 300 babies in this litter rather than like, you know, ones that have already got faces when they're born and don't have to hatch. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from Darren from Asheville, North Carolina, who says, The other night I was half watching an old war movie. I was mostly texting with friends, so I wasn't totally paying attention. <laughs> Uh, but when one of the paratroopers jumped out of a plane, it sounded like he said, Geronimo. Yes. Probably did. Mm-hmm. So, Helen, answer me this. Did people used to say Geronimo when jumping out of a plane? And if so, why? Yes, they did. Um, it was a practice that allegedly started up with um, American military in 1940. There's a couple of explanations. One of them is that they had this um, platoon that was testing out parachutes and they were very nervous about it because it was a new thing to do for them. Yeah, I mean, I'd generally be quite nervous if parachute tester was my job description. So allegedly the night before they went out on the piss and they went to the cinema and saw a Western film featuring uh, Geronimo, the Native American leader, depicted in it. There's a film called Geronimo that it could well have been. Right. And so one of them was like, tomorrow, when I jump out the plane, I'm going to shout Geronimo uh, to sort of like pluck up courage, basically. Or the other explanation is there was a popular song at the time called Geronimo that the troops loved and they agreed to shout it. However it started, it definitely caught on as a practice a bit when people were jumping out of planes. Geronimo was um, a, a very like major Native American leader of the Apaches. He spent like the last 23 years of his life as a prisoner of war. And I was a little confused as to why he would be associated with jumping or falling. There was a bluff in Oklahoma where he was uh, kept captive as a prisoner of war and where he's buried. It's a steep cliff and it's known as Geronimo's Bluff. And there's this um, story that one day he was being pursued by the army and leapt off the bluff um, on horseback and everyone was like, shit, Geronimo made that jump that everyone else would be killed doing. And that while he was doing it, he shouted his own name. Which is where I think, did he though? Right. Was he doing that so the army knew who, like, had just um, dicked them around? But was that sequence depicted in the film Geronimo? Because then the innocent explanation that they went to see that film, you know, even though it's not exactly a nice thing to make a joke about, still works, doesn't it? Uh, The film is about trying to capture him 
and I haven't seen it, so I don't know all of the things that happen in it. But like all these things, most people who shout it now, like, you know, if you're jumping off a cliff, um, you know, on holiday into a ravine. If I am, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> well, I've done that on a stag do, for example. I had no idea that Geronimo was a Native American leader. I had no idea where that came from. It's just a thing people say, isn't it? Here's a question from Satwant who says, search engines like Ecosia say that you can search the web to plant trees. Airlines ask you to pay an extra pound or dollar when booking a ticket to plant trees to offset carbon. Ollie, answer me this. Do all of these trees really get planted? If so, where are they on Google Maps? The difference between vast swathes of deforested land being reforested slowly is not going to necessarily be visible by satellite on Google Maps anyway. Hmm. But yes, is the answer you can actually see photos of... Uh, like barren areas of Burkina Faso, for example, which are now really verdant. And there are before and after photos. And those are the photos that Ecosia and the other tree planting organisations say they have contributed to. In the case of Ecosia, the search engine, so the idea is every time you search, they take the advertising money that's through ad display, and even more if Uh. you were to click on an ad, that Google takes as profit, they take and reinvest into tree planting. So that's the concept. Right, right. But they're not a public company. So although they are a provably philanthropic enterprise and the money goes to a trust, you can't scrutinise their accounts. You have to take their word for it. Mm. But they've been going since 2009 and they are said to make over a million euros per month and that doesn't appear to be going anywhere other than planting trees. So... Yeah, they they claim to have planted more than 100 million of them. It's a useful app. It's a useful browser. I use it. Yeah, I'd love to use it. But the problem is because I kind of am a professional Googler in a sense. I feel like I, I need it to truly be as good as Google. And it isn't quite because it's built on Bing, isn't it? So it's fine. But I would, I, if I was using it all the time, I'd feel like I'd have to cross-reference everything with Google, which seems like making more work for myself. But with that whole thing where you add a pound to your flight booking, yes, it's going to take a lot more pounds to plant enough trees to offset the carbon of a flight. Yeah, that's right. So, um, for example, a 12,400-mile round trip, which would be something like Edinburgh to Phuket, would require the planting of 19 trees to be fully offset. That's not that many. Well, (laughs) it depends. I mean, each tree costs, let's say, a tenner. So that's £190. It's not a dollar, is it? So you'd be better off, probably, if you were really serious... I mean, there's the whole question about whether offsetting works at all. We'll get onto that in a minute. Mm. But if you were really serious about offsetting the carbon that your flight had generated, then you'd probably be better off giving $20 yourself to a tree planting charity than $1 to an airline um, who are doing it for public relations. And even from the airline's point of view, they'd probably be better off investing in greener planes yeah because the whole calculation doesn't actually take account of what flight you're taking if the plane's 50 years old it's a different calculation to a new plane well also there's all the crap that's on the plane so some airline companies have made the decision not to use uh single-use plastics anymore so it's all like compostable forks whereas some of them produce just a hell of a lot of landfill just with the shit on the plane the plastic on the plane at least is is uh made at ground level before it's taken up into the air. Because the other thing about planes is they don't just emit carbon, do they? They spew out a load of toxic shit, not just carbon. And they're spewing it out into the atmosphere at height, which again, like, you know, is, can that ever really be uh, reciprocated by planting a tree down on Earth? I mean, probably not. Plant some trees 30,000 feet up in the air. <laughs> exactly. Obvious. Some scientists reckon you'd have to plant 1.5 trillion trees to offset the carbon emitted since the Industrial Revolution began. Mm. The problem is you can't remove all the carbon that's in the atmosphere now and store it. Yeah. uh, Or all of the carbon that's previously been released. It goes some way, but it will never solve it. But, but, that's not to say that this is... I mean, it is PR bullshit for the airline companies 
but at least it's better than a kick in the tits. Like, I mean, it's not, it's not. <laughs> sure. It's, it? it's, it's not nothing. Close it's to just it. that it's not the solution. The solution is not to take the flight at all. It's a bit like I used to feel like this when I um, worked at ITV Daytime and I used to have to try and hawk the calendar that we used to do with like, oh, it's Dr. Chris Steele surrounded by snakes. <laughs> it was sold to the audience as like a fun charity calendar, but it cost something like £10 and of that something like 50p went to charity. Yeah. And I always just used to feel uneasy about the way we marketed it as a charity calendar because although it's true that by selling that calendar, ITV probably gave like a hundred grand to charity – if they took all the money that people had given them and all the money it cost to do the photo shoot and just gave it to charity, they'd be giving millions. Yeah. So it was just like, I, I just felt really uncomfortable about it. I'm often suspicious about that where they're like, 10 pence from the purchase of this 20 pound bracelet goes to... Yeah. That's not enough. Well, you, you still think that's nice. Like, that's a nice thing for an owner of a company to do with their private it's money. It's nice Great. washing, though. Do it, exactly. It's nice washing. Do it, but don't tell me about it. Just, do, just Let's just assume that everyone who's making ridiculous amounts of money might give some away to philanthropic causes. But don't make it the reason to buy that thing. Or maybe give some of that money towards a government as a proportion of your income or profit. That would be another way to do it. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going to catch on. But... Indeed. Well, here we are now at the end of this episode of Answer Me This. But to make next month's episode of Answer Me This, we need your questions in the form of text or voice that you email us. And our email address is on our website, answermethispodcast.com. Also on the website, you can find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And to the Answer Me This store, where you can buy our first 200 episodes, uh, although they have temporarily disappeared from iTunes. I know, I'm aware of it. We're trying to deal with that. But anyway, you can buy them from our website regardless, and we'd rather you bought them from us direct rather than give Apple a cut for doing fuck all. Uh, <laughs> and you can buy our six exclusive albums of enjoyable content there too. And we also make other audio content. Ollie, what's happening this month in the extended manverse? Yes, uh, I do five podcasts. You can discover them all at ollieman.com. And in the current edition of The Modern Man, which is my magazine show, the episode is called Mr. and Mrs. and Mrs. Because in it, I meet a thruple, two ladies and a man, who met online for a threesome initially, just a sex thing, and then develop that relationship beyond the bedroom into an actual committed relationship. So Aww. two of them are now married to each other, but if they could legally three-way marry each other, they would. And it's an open relationship, and they have just signed the deeds on a house together. There's a lot of logistics, <laughs> which is just fascinating to hear about. So you can find that at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Helen, what's in the Zaltzverse of podcasts? Well, I appeared on uh, someone else's podcast recently, Anthems, which is a very good podcast, which is like short essays by different people each day. And they asked me to choose a word and I chose the word tourist. So if you search the Anthems feed, you can uh, hear what I have to say about that. And also on The Illusionist, there is a story about how to do protest through cake. <laughs> Excellent. Apart from just throwing it at people, right? In design. Oh, no, no. Yes. It's you eat it. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You throw it down your gullet into your stomach. And Martin, last night I watched Tom Waits in a film and I didn't realise ah. it was Tom Waits oh, until the end. And that's the second time that that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> He's so chameleonic. Which film was it? Seven Psychopaths? No. Bram Stoker's Dracula? It was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, it was. Oh, you watched Bram Stoker's Fresh Dracula? Lives for the Master. I, did, I really enjoyed it, but it's, I sort of had <laughs> underestimated the Lots of boobs in extent it. to which it is essentially a comedy. Um, but, you know, <laughs> yes, if you see fair. it as basically carry on Dracula, then it's quite a laugh. <laughs> 
Anyway. So I do a Tom Waits podcast. I was on it, critiquing Bram Stoker's Dracula featuring Tom Waits. I must go back and listen to that. A lot of people love it. Lucky you, if you do. I do whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. I, I, I don't love it. It's three stars, but I'm just saying I enjoyed it for itself. You know, I was watching it at midnight after a few glasses of wine. Uh, the visual design's really cool. Yeah. Like, it looks amazing because they did lots and lots of stuff with practical effects. And obviously, like, CGI was at the point where it would, look, would have looked really, really shit at that point. Yeah. People insult Keanu Reeves' performance in that. But I think to it's pick on Keanu Reeves in that film yeah. is rude. I, I disagree. I think he's definitely the worst thing in it. Well, <laughs> wow. I, Gary Oldman's I'm butt impressed. hair would like a word. <laughs> uh, it's called Song by Song, the podcast. And you can find it at songbysongpodcast.com. I don't know whether that answer me this, listeners know, but I actually write a lot of music for podcasts. And uh, there's a podcast of some pod friends of ours, Charles Adrian and Lisa Finley, called Romcom Rewrite, that I just wrote a theme song for. It's a really fun show where they talk about romcoms and sort of like re- rebuild them and talk about how you'd make them better if they're bad and even better if they're, if they're already good. In the meantime, stay subscribed to Answer Me This to get a retro episode from the vaults dropped into your feed halfway through the month, in which our current selves look back with fear and pity on our previous incarnations and uh, we will be back next month with a fresh answer me this bye Bye.